Howdy, folks. Welcome to Redneck Gone Green. I'm your host, David Cobb. I am the Redneck, and you bet I've gone green, and I'm trying to convince you to do it, too. And a reminder that when I and this program say is go green, we mean that on a multiple number of levels. The first one and most important one is an understanding of deep ecology, not mere environmentalism or conservationism, but an understanding of the interconnectedness of all of life itself. It is an indigenous worldview that recognizes that creation itself is all interwoven, interrelated, and whatever we do to the web of life, we ultimately do to ourselves. I also want to remind you that every single human being on planet Earth today descends from indigenous ancestors. Everybody has ancestors at one time that had a worldview of a sacred relationship of place and people and interconnectedness. And so the invitation and challenge to you, the viewer, listener of Redneck Gone Green, uh, is to find your way back to what your ancestors once knew. Now, the second way that I talk about going green is Green Party. And I am unequivocal. I am unrepentant. And I am clear that the Democratic Party leadership uh, is a neoliberal worldview that is literally going to take us over the cliff. Now, I don't fuss with people. Uh, I know many progressives uh, who are within the Democratic Party, uh, and I recognize that the, the Democratic Party base is far more progressive uh, than the neoliberal leadership. But I do think that we need to build independent political action. And I don't mean merely electoral, but I mean including elections, that we need to build a movement from the bottom up uh, that is clear and unequivocal that this is working class people advocating for ourselves. And I do not believe that either the Democratic or Republican Party leadership give a tinker's damn about people like us. The other thing I want to do before I bring in my pal Zach uh, into this conversation is to remind you we are growing an audience. We are very excited about that. And I'm going to invite you, please, to like comment and subscribe, whether you're viewing us on Facebook or YouTube or Rumble, please uh, engage the conversation. Uh, and remember that our Substack is growing. We uh, just went over 4,000 subscribers, really excited about that. So please uh, subscribe to our Substack. Remember, we do a writing on Substack once a week, and then we do this a video uh, podcast or video stream that goes out on Facebook and Rumble and YouTube. And then uh, we turn it into a podcast. So with that, it is my distinct pleasure uh, to bring. So, uh, you know, I'm usually the only redneck on these uh, on this program. But today, here we go. I want to punch a button and through the magic of technology, we got another redneck. Zach, <laughs> welcome to Redneck Gone Green. Hey, how you doing? You know, I'm mighty fine. And, you know, Zach, I have the privilege of knowing you a little bit. And for those who are listening and not able to see on the screen, you've literally identified yourself as the mad redneck. Yeah. So, Zach, I'm going to give you all the space in the world you need. I want you to tell the story of how a poor hillbilly from Alabama ended up at the University of California at Berkeley and then came back uh, to... Uh, to Alabama. So, you know, I know you could do a whole book on that, 
but I think your story is unique and I want you to tell it. So Zach, take it away. I did write a whole book on that. It's called Memoirs of a Mad Redneck. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I was born in uh, Birmingham, Alabama in 1978, August 31st. My dad was a traveling salesman. He uh, sold wholesale meats and my mom was a stay-at-home mom. My dad was also a Church of Christ preacher. I grew up in the Church of Christ. It was a very uh, rigid fundamentalist church. Uh, my dad was a brutal, brutal man. Uh, and uh, I, I grew up with a lot of trauma. Um, when I turned 16 years old, I decided to try to join Memorial Parkway Church of Christ, which was in Huntsville, which as far as I know, that church no longer exists. And uh, I thought it would be just like, hey, go hang out with the elders and they would let you be part of the church. Well, they grilled me for two hours on incorrect dogma, heretical views, you know, that sort of stuff. And I essentially lost faith. And uh, I gave up a scholarship to David Lipscomb University, which was a Church of Christ University, and I became an auto technician. Um, and I did that for about seven years. And So, Zach, I told you I wanted to give you all the space in the world, but I got to jump in here. Yeah. Because here's something. I went to uh, uh, an assembly of God. My grandfather uh, yeah. uh, was, a, uh, was a preacher. Uh, and my mama, uh, once uh, when I was fussing about that, she said, son, you've got more in common with your grandfather than you care to admit. Uh, you may not, you may not have the same uh, uh, approach to a dogmatic, uh, theological, uh, cosmological worldview, but you've got a lot of that in you. And I reckon you do too. But I also want to just let you know that my crisis of faith happened when I was about seven years old. And I saw, there we were at a, uh, uh, at a uh, at a big uh, 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 potluck dinner, right? You, I know you've been to many a revival with yeah. the potluck, yeah. right? And there was this table just groaning with all the food, right? The weight of the food. And this was a, a poor area in Houston, Texas. It was a neighborhood, but an industrial type, you know, one of those kind of places, yeah. right? Yeah. And here comes this fellow walking up, and I'm going to be honest, right? Like uh, we had literally just had at VBS, Vacation Bible School, we had just had... Uh, the story of the Good Samaritan, right? Yeah. And you remember the felt markers? You use those little felt things and tell the story. And uh, so here comes this uh, old black man, what I now realize that my little mind didn't know it, but he was clearly homeless, right? But I knew he was disheveled and, and a poor person. And the deacons didn't throw rocks at him. They didn't, they didn't run him off with broomsticks. But Zach, what they did was they kind of surrounded him and walked him through the the buffet line, right? Gave him a plate of food and then sent him on his way. And I didn't have the language to understand or to articulate it the way I can right now. But what I realized then is where we just a bunch of damn hypocrites, we don't actually mean what we say. So for me, I, I didn't know this about you, but I like you even more now that you've told me that story. Yeah. And there's a lot of hypocrites out there these, this day and age. And I think we need uh, uh, more Christ-like figures to call out the hypocrites in our leadership and even in activism and organizing. It, anyway, back to my story. Um, yeah, I, the seven years that I was an auto technician in Huntsville, I was, pr I was just wild. I did every drug imaginable, chasing women, acting, acting a fool, being a pretty crappy person in general. 
And then I, in 20, 2002, after 9-11, I had a sort of epiphany after 9-11, which was like, I, I didn't have the same reaction that everybody else had, which was like, you know, let's go blow them all back to hell. You know, my reaction was, why would somebody do that? Like, this was not one person. This was an organized team of people who managed to knock down three buildings. And um, I was curious. I was like, why would somebody do that? So I decided to go to college. I went to my father's alma mater, Auburn University, did really well. Um, I graduated summa cum laude. I did some undergraduate research and with my mentor, Connor Bailey. And uh, then I ended up at uh, Berkeley and, you know, through pretty much a stroke of pure luck that I ended up there because I, I really don't have the cultural capital to like play in that game. Um, I, I don't, I didn't really understand what was happening to me at Berkeley. All I understood was read and write. And so that's what I did. And I did, I graduated in four and a half years. Um, and I started an organization called Magic City Agriculture Project, which well, was. I, I, I do want to uh, interrupt because you're, you're being overly uh, modest right now because you you went to the University of California, Berkeley and got a Ph.D. It's not <laughs> as if you went and like an undergraduate is impressive enough. But I'm just going to say, Zach, like, you know, we, like tell the story. Right. Like you, you actually yeah, were well, in. The I don't PhD. know. There's, there's so many people that help me and like open doors for me and made sure that I could do the things that I wanted to do. And, you know, like Carolyn Finney was my mentor in, um, at Berkeley and she, she kind of let me do whatever I wanted to do. And, you know, I, I don't, there's no singular accomplishments. Every, every accomplishment is collective. Um, and so my accomplishment is not my accomplishment. It's my community's accomplishment It's Alabama's accomplishment is, is my family's accomplishment. It's, you know, it's, it's not, it doesn't belong to me. It belongs to everybody. And I think we got to get away from uh, this idea that, you know, there are heroes because um, the people who are good at things are usually good at things because they've had a lot of help getting there. And yeah, I'm good at some things. And um, it's because I've had a lot of people who've helped me to be good at those things and have taken the time to invest in me. And that's, you know, to me, that's luck. Um, not everybody gets that. Um, I will stand corrected. And I appreciate that. And, you know, before we got on the uh, program, you, 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 you made an insight uh, about leaders. And so I'm wondering if you could uh, share your thoughts and I will let you get back to your narrative. I promise. Mm -hmm. I, I know exactly where we are. You're an auto, uh, you're an auto technician back in Alabama, but, you, you said something that I want our listeners to hear about leaders, because on the left, where I do most of my political work, uh, there seems to be a real reluctance uh, and suspicion of leaders. And you had something to say about that. I think we need leaders on the left. I think we need people who want to be leaders on the left. But I think I don't I think there's a difference between being popular and being a leader or having a hot take and being a leader, a leader is somebody who can pull people together and get everybody going in the right direction and going in the same direction and pulling in the same direction. And a leader is somebody who is not necessarily liked, but respected. And uh, my buddy told me that who is a, 
he's a restaurant manager and I've known he's my best friend. I've known him for 25 years and we talk about leadership regularly. And he says, you know, leaders are, it's not about being liked. It's about being respected and being willing to say the things that need to be said, even if people don't like you because you say them. And, uh, you know, Hot Thurman, who's was an original young Patriot told me 10, 15 years ago, he said, Zach, we need leaders. And if anybody knows it, he does. So I, I think we need people who want to be leaders and who want to stand. It's not easy. Being a leader is should be very extremely difficult. And it is not easy to be a leader. I'm a leader in my community. I care about the people in our community and I want what's best for them. And I try to do the things that my community needs me to do in order for them to be okay and safe and healthy and loved and all that sort of stuff. And to me, that's what being a leader is, is caring for your people. And, you know, we get, we get the idea that we got the, the capitalist hierarchical idea that leadership is about dictating orders from the top down. And that's, that's couldn't be further from the truth. Leadership is about, you know, saying what needs to be said and caring for your people. So thank you for that. And and thank you for mentioning High Thurman and the Young Patriots. I reckon we'll circle back and have a little of that conversation. But I do want to get back to the story of your story, Zach, uh, 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 where you back in uh, Alabama, you, you are you're repairing cars. No, I'm not repairing cars. Oh, I'm back. I'm back in Alabama after grad school. I'm a community organizer in Birmingham, Alabama. Ah, thank you for that. I, I got ahead of the story. So you're community organizing in Birmingham. And I, was, uh, we got together with some people and we started a Magic City Agriculture Project, which was an anti-racist and community development organization, which doesn't match. It's not a good, it wasn't a great organization. Um, but we wanted to put aquaponics cooperatives in every disadvantaged neighborhood in Birmingham to sort of knock out, you know, multiple problems one would be employment and the other one would be the availability of food and uh we totally failed we didn't we didn't get one installed ever so that's that sort of project failed um i got involved in politics um in 2017 uh, no in 2015 we wrote a strategic plan for birmingham about anti-racism and cooperative development and a, a young mayor, a young uh, politician reached out to us. His name was Randall Woodfin, and he indicated to us that he would be running for mayor. And I was just like, man, fuck electoral politics. I'm not getting involved with this fool. And uh, he uh, he courted me for two solid years. And uh, they came out with uh, the Black Agenda, and Woodfin endorsed it. The Black Agenda was like half of our cooperative developments and half Black Lives Matter's policing uh, reforms. And Randall Woodfin endorsed it. And I endorsed Randall Woodfin. I was like, if he's going to do this, I'm, I, I got to endorse him. You know, I've been preaching this stuff for years. And Randall Woodfin got elected um, 59, to 40, 59 to 41 over a machine candidate. And Randall Woodfin totally fucking betrayed us. And he uh, he did not do one single thing that he promised that he would do. And I was done. I was it was it, it about ended me as far as my activism and community organizing career. I, my wife got a job in Montgomery. We moved to Montgomery in 2018 
And I went back to work at a shop. I was like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not fucking with these fools. Like they're all liars. They're all sorry people. They don't care about anything but power. They'll do anything they can to get whatever power they want. And I was just like, I'd rather just deal with working class people. And you know, Zach, I, I will say that uh, I'll, I'll confess uh, to the audience that, uh, like, I knew you then, right? Uh, I think I'd gotten to know you just a little bit before that through our mutual friend Mel Figueroa. So, uh, you know, thank to the goddess for putting uh, Mel on this planet. The world's a better place because of her. Absolutely. Uh, but but uh, I remember watching from afar on social media, uh, you were pissed and you you kind of spiraled through that time period. Oh, yeah. That's what it looked like oh, to yeah. me anyway from afar. Yeah, I was, I, I questioned, I was mad as hell. I, and I wasn't, I wasn't just mad. I wasn't just mad at um, Randall Woodfin. I was mad at the way that a lot of people in the activist community used me to get what they wanted. And, uh, you know, I let it happen. I, I'm culpable to that, too, because I let it happen. Because, like I said, I just want to be liked. Um, I just want to be popular. And uh, I let people use me to get what they wanted. And I adopted an ideology that was not good for me or rednecks. And, um, you know, I got to I, there was a point when, when I, I remember saying this specifically. I've worked in Birmingham for almost a decade and I have not helped one single person like me. And that when that when I sort of had that realization, that's probably the moment in time that I was the most angry and the moment in time when I was the most like, I'm not fucking doing this anymore. Like, I'm just not. I I will go work in a shop, you know, bang out some tires, do some engine jobs, do some oil changes, do some diag, learn all the new technology. And, uh, you know, that's that's kind of where I went. And then the pandemic hit. And I got to thinking, I got to thinking, I was like, all these people that have invested in me, Connor Bailey, Carolyn Finney, my wife, uh, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of people who've invested in me and really cared about me um, and have trained me to be a leader. I think when the pandemic hit, we need leadership. So... I got together with some old comrades and we uh, started the Automotive Free Clinic. And Automotive Free Clinic is a free and low-cost automotive repair shop. We started off as a a mobile shop and we moved to a three-bay shop and now we're in a six-bay shop. And uh, we've, in four, almost four years, we've repaired about 500 vehicles and uh, given away six vehicles for free. And we really done it. We did pretty well. Money's tight. Like any kind of organization like this, money's going to be tight because, you know, the foundation system is so corrupt and co-opted that if you take any big money from a foundation, you're going to be owned by them. So we're trying to stay as independent as possible and uh, live by just, uh, you know, individual donations and small grants as best we can. So, so, you know, Zach, I'll let you know, uh, you you probably know Project South. Uh, I hope you do. Uh, yeah. Project South, yeah. my, my dear friend and mentor, Jerome Scott, uh, one of the, uh, he, he's he's no longer the executive director, but he was the founder, executive director, uh, uh, but just a towering figure. Uh, he used to say uh, that his favorite uh, foundation was the Pass the Hat Foundation. Yeah. Yeah, that's the foundation that's supporting us is the Pass the Hat Foundation. That's for sure. 
That's for sure. And we appreciate every single five and ten dollar donation that we get from anybody, man. We 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 really do appreciate the community has stepped up to support us. We have over a thousand individual donations in four years, and the community has really stepped up for us. And I mean, we really appreciate the church, my church, First Christian Church of Montgomery, which is a liberation theology church. Um you know, they have stepped up to support us and have, you know, basically squeezed every last dime they can out of it to help us stay afloat. And I just, you know, I'm just blown away by the amount of support that we've got. And, you know, I definitely appreciate it. Folks, you're listening and or watching Redneck Gone Green. I'm your host, David Cobb. I am, well, usually I say I am the redneck, but in this conversation, I'm going to say I'm a redneck. Because I'm actually talking to another red, self-described, and I dare I say proud redneck, uh, Zach Henson, who goes by the moniker, The Mad Redneck. And uh, before we go any further, Zach, I just, because uh, you and I know uh, the phrase redneck and we use it with such, uh, 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 I think it's an honorific, I'm going to invite you to tell our leaders, uh, our listeners, our viewers, what in the world makes us proud to be rednecks whenever the vision that people have about rednecks are, are, are not good in many circles? So tell us about that term and why people like you and me use it so proudly. So it's interesting because we actually did at the shop um, a redneck studies class. Um, it was a six weeks class where we read um, some of Isabel Machado's work about uh, redneck horror and internal Orientalism. And then we listened to like Country Boy Can't Survive and Hank Williams, Hank the Third. And we listened to Bluegrass and then we watched Deliverance, which we critiqued. And then we watched uh, Junebug, which was like, Junebug was like, this is the most accurate representation of redneck culture in film ever. <laughs> and, uh, we have, we, have, we have conversations about this in the shop. What does it mean to be a redneck? That sort of stuff. And we've come to this idea that it's like redneck is a way of life. It's not a, it's not racialized. It is, it's, a, it's a way of life. It's resourcefulness and honor and, um, you know, creativity and taking care of people in your community. And, uh, you know, I also to a degree, believe it in Christianity of some sort, some way, shape or form. Um, so yeah, I think that, I think that redneck is, is, is a way of life and, uh, it's a way of life where you, you know, a country boy can't survive as Hank Williams Jr. said. Well, it's a, it's a good song. And I also want to invite you to just say a word or two about the kerchiefs that the, uh, the miners were wearing. Uh, yeah. if you, if you know that story. Yeah, I mean the the in 1921 the uh, the miners in uh, West Virginia were fighting the Pinkertons and the companies and the U.S. government, and they uh, they were sort of a diverse group of people, Italians, black people, that sort of stuff, and they wore red neckerchiefs around their necks to symbolize their solidarity, and that's where the term redneck comes from. Um, you know, redneck has evolved had gone through many different sort of iterations over, over the years. And I don't think it means the same thing now that it, that it meant back then, but then not to say that we couldn't start talking about it again. And, uh, 
I also, the interesting thing is, is that, you know, there was an aerial bombing of West Virginia um, during that conflict. And it was the second aerial bombing ever on United States soil. The first one was two weeks earlier at Tulsa in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So if you're talking about solidarity, what they do to black people in Tulsa, Oklahoma, they're going to do two weeks later to, you know, labeled white people in um, West Virginia. So thank you for that, Zach. And thanks for bringing the Tulsa uh, bombing uh, up. Because uh, a lot of people don't know about that uh, horrific uh, show, and I tell people all the time that 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 seem to think that their white skin, like, make no mistake about it, y'all. White skin does give privileges. There's no doubt that white skin is privileged in this country. But uh, look at Bacon's Rebellion, right? Like, there are so many, and there are so many examples. Because if you really think that just because you share pigment, pigment. Uh, with the ruling predatory class, uh, uh, it, I, I got a suggestion for you. Why don't you go to the country club in your community, knock on the door and say, hey, I ain't got no money, uh, but I am white. Can I come swim in the pool and see how they fucking treat you? That's that's my invitation to anybody who thinks that there is any uh, genuine solidarity with the predatory class uh, with people uh, who look like them. You know, I've I started telling my people that I'm not white. Um, like I start saying white is I start explaining that white, the term white person is so broad and so diverse as to be basically meaningless. Like there's no such thing as a white person. There is white supremacy, but that's sort of them labeling this basically random grouping of people as white is the part of the power of white supremacy. And to take that power away from white supremacy is to get this random grouping of people to start being like, Hey, I'm Italian. Hey, I'm Irish. Hey, I'm a redneck. Hey, I'm a hillbilly. Because ethnicity exists, right? Yes. yes. For sure. But race is a construct, right? Now, now it's real because it's constructed, right? But this is the point, y'all, that Zach is making. And again, uh, we both mentioned uh, our dear mutual friend, Mel Figueroa. Uh, she's the one who, who uses this phrase, which I've always loved. And she said, race is something that happens to you. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, and yeah. I always thought that was profound. And Zach, before we get back to our conversation, I want to let you know that uh, Dave is a uh, a frequent viewer and listener, and he's written in a, a interesting question, which I want to ask to you. And that is, are there many women rednecks? Yeah, there's a bunch of beautiful women rednecks out there. Yeah, they like hunt. They like hunting and fishing and uh, talking shit and. Yeah, and they'll drink the beer. Drink and beer. They'll, 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 they'll eat a crawdad. They'll, they'll do it all. I grew, up, I grew up with them, man. I, you know, <laughs> I, I definitely grew up with them. They, tough as nails. Tough. I mean, tough as nails. So looking here, Zach. I, like I, I, I also want to make sure that we uh, really situate the automotive free clinic uh, into a larger context because what's interesting to me is that there is a 
very clear and obvious to me political orientation uh, associated with that, but it's also not a dogmatic one, right? And I'm going to invite you to say, like, you are meeting material needs of transportation, and there's a reason for that in Alabama. So I want you to to set the context of why a, a, a free automotive clinic is so critically important for the material needs of the folks you're you're helping. Yeah, well, we shouldn't exist. The automotive free clinic, there's no reason for the automotive free clinic to exist. We exist because of a failure of public policy. Um, in Alabama, the gas tax, there's a constitutional amendment that says the gas tax cannot be spent on public transportation. And essentially, after the civil rights movement, they took the white power structure in Alabama took away uh, the buses. And now everybody suffers because everybody has to have a car. And, you know, I'll be frank with you. We can't we can't fix all the cars that people are trying to are trying to come through the door. We we have a limited capacity and we're turning two, two or three people away a day. And that's how much the need is. Um, as far as the broader sort of implications of 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 the automotive free clinic, you know, we we kind of we redneck kind of mentality is that nobody's coming to save us and uh we got to kind of do for ourselves and uh that's kind of how we're we look at what we're doing with automatic free with the automotive free clinic is that we're you know we're doing for ourselves and for our community because we know nobody's coming to save us and there definitely ain't nobody fucking coming to save us in alabama i mean <laughs> nah Nah, bro. Ain't nobody coming to save us in Alabama. So, uh, that, and uh, Catherine asked then, I think you've already given the answer, but I want to uh, pose it for those who are just listening or watching and not able to follow the chat. But Catherine asked, are y'all planning on expanding outside of Alabama? That's all about money. It, yeah, if we could expand outside. We have a network that is south. American South-based, but it's not automotive-free clinics. It's like harm reduction, cooperative education, farming, uh, disaster relief, real estate education. So we have a network that's south south-wide. Um, but as far as other automotive-free clinics, starting on well, it, it 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 would take a particularly skilled individual who is who like looky here like i could change oil but i can't uh yeah. like I, I you know i i couldn't do what you do right yeah like, and, I work, and we work for free like and, I, yeah i work for free and my tech works for free i mean he's retired and he does this out of the goodness of his heart and it's sort of it's kind of a special situation you know if we could raise the money to expand i would love to i would love to expand within the state of alabama have franchises but uh you know everybody's there's no money there, there's no money left in the american society it's all been sucked up by the capitalist power structures and and i think that's something that i want to really underscore to the viewers and the listeners of redneck gone green like uh, everybody that I bring on to this program, I bring on because they have an analytical framework on the intersection between white supremacy 
and capitalism and settler colonialism and heteropatriarchy, right? A shared analysis about power over extraction domination. And each one is reacting to that in particular and peculiar ways, right? Like, uh, and, and I think the automotive free clinic, uh, I don't know anybody who's doing what you're doing, Zach. Yeah, I don't either. You know, I'm... and so the point I want that, that I'm making is, so there is a material need that's desperate in Alabama uh, because of, uh, of horrific decisions made. And, and I'll be honest, I had no idea that there was a constitutional amendment forbidding the gas tax to be used for public transport. And of course, we know that that's directly tied to the successful Montgomery boycott yeah. uh, in the civil rights, right? Like, like I don't have to know, I don't have to research or go to the internet to know that that's exactly what happened, right? But yeah. the point is that meeting material needs, if that's all you do, that's merely charity. There's something deeper at play in what you're doing, and and I, I want to invite you to uh, to share with the viewers and the listeners like how you think about this as a explicitly political project, even without the normal typical leftist dogma. Yeah, I mean, I think it's another world is possible. Like that's the whole. It's like there is a world that could exist in which people take care of each other and share and cooperate and there is an economy that could exist that is based on sharing and cooperation and that's what the automotive free clinic is about it's about building an economy that is based on sharing and cooperation um, and that's really what our entire network is about the educational and economic resource organizing network i got buddies up in um, sand mountain who are uh, running Sand Mountain Cooperative Education Center who are working on ESOP conversions. And it's it's all about building a new world and another and that another world is possible and that we are creating that. And the one thing that I want to point out, us rednecks are creating that new world. That's right. That's right. And, and uh, I love that. And I want to make sure, uh, Zach, that at some point we need to circle back uh, and uh, share best practices and cross-pollinate because you may know since we uh, 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 since we uh, first or last interacted, uh, I have become the co-coordinator of the U.S. Solidarity Economy Network, <laughs> uh, which very specifically has a fra a post-capitalist framework. And one of our our principles is pluralism. So. I don't fuss with people, Zach, uh, yeah. if they if they say, oh, but capitalism can be reformed if we just do it correctly. I'm like, all right, you can believe that. And I don't. But that doesn't mean we can't work together. Like, let's work together wherever we can work together. But part of the, uh, the solidarity economy uh, framework is if you are not putting things into practice in the real world, meeting people's objective material needs, then you're merely pontificating. So that's why I say all the time, I, I embrace the Andre Gorse notion of non-reformist reforms, which is to say community land trusts and public banking and participatory budgeting and universal basic income. And now I'll add automotive free clinics. Like the point is we have to meet people's material needs, but do it in a way that's designed not just 
uh, to win a particular reform, but to transform the political economy. You know, I, I'm going to jump in here and throw a curveball into this, but I think we got to get up, get in with unions. I think we got to start working with unions because unions have a bit more capital than I got. I don't know about you. I don't know how much capital you got, but unions have a bit more capital than I got. And unions are workplace democracy. And for us, and we've been talking about this with the unions, um, in, in, in Alabama, it's mutual aid, cooperatives, and unions are the three things that need to be working together to create this another world as possible world. And, you know, I really, you know, they're about, Alabama is producing more cars than Detroit did during their heyday. So they're, the UAW is uh, doing a union drive in the state of Alabama for all of the automakers, Hyundai, Hyundai, Kia, Mercedes-Benz, Toyota, Mazda. Um, so, I mean, if the state could be the state could be a hotbed for working class activism in the coming years, if we could get everybody on the same page. And I always I talk about it like this: like we got educational organizations, we got farming organizations, we got disaster relief organizations, we got auto repair. We could provide wraparound services to working class people who are in unions, if we could find out some sort of partnership that would work well together. And I know that may not be what you were looking for, but I, I just think that, I think that's a freaking great, like to me, it's a great idea. It is a brilliant idea. And uh, I, I'm going to do my best to take a swing at that curveball and tell you that if you're not familiar with the union cooperative uh, as a, as a, as a model, uh, or I'll you you probably are, but I'm gonna let the viewers and listeners know uh, that there is such a thing as a unionized cooperative, which is still a cooperative that is beholden to the legal involvement uh, by trade unions in the representation of the workers' interests. Now, most unions, uh, the workers report to the external employee uh, employer, like the United Auto Workers. You report your uh, union but you're reporting to the United Auto Workers, right? Uh, or the United Auto Workers represent you, but you're still reporting to Dodge or Chevrolet or, or whoever it is. But a, a, a unionized cooperative can be different. And so to me, Zach, let's definitely explore a little bit uh, the effort uh, and think about what they've done in Barcelona, for example, uh, and uh, the Mondragon Collectives that are also union versions, because there is a, a an effort to do exactly what you're just describing. And uh, I know that the folks at Co-op Cincy uh, are, are involved in that. So I think that I'd like to make sure to schedule a time where we can just be thought partners uh, and kind of think through how to cross-pollinate this and to, to come up with some of those creative ideas because I think you're onto something here. Yeah, I think I could bring in some other people too if you wanted, if you were okay with that. I could bring in a couple other people that I've been working with that I think would be interested in the conversation if, if you're okay with that. Well, of course I am. I mean, look at here. Like what I know is this, that, that uh, if we are going to win a new world, uh, we're going to have to engage in a level of social experimentation and theory. And, you know, one of the things that I'm proud of in the U.S. solidarity economy is we make the observation that in most left circles, 
it seems like there are theories in search of a practice. But in the solidarity economy framework, uh, these are practices in search of a theory, right? People are already doing this, right? People are already cooperating. People are already sharing. And I got news for you. That predated industrialism. That predated the, the uh, entire nation state and mercantilism. That predated the enclosure movement. You bastards, that's how human beings survived before yeah. the predatory class came along. Yeah, I, I mean, we're you build it and then you figure out what you're doing. Like, that's pretty much, I, that, that's like you just go out and do it and then you like sit back and think, okay, what am I doing? And then you revise it and you go out and do some more and then you sit back and think, and that to me, that's dialectics. Like, that's like how dialectics is supposed to work. Um, and, you know, to me, the, uh, uh, the, 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 it is how dialectics work. And it's also how praxis works, right? Yeah. Like, because, yeah. because one thing that I, like, I tell people all the time, like, like, um, everybody has a theory, Zach. Now, some people's theory is intentional and deliberate. Some are just thoughtless because, all theory means is your understanding of how the world operates, right. Right? right? That's your theory, right? Now, the thing is, uh, if you uh, if you want social change and all you ever do is theorize, you're basically engaging in contemplation, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so action without, but, but so, so theory without action is just contemplation. But there's a corollary to that, Zach, and that is. Action without theory is just doing shit. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so what I like about uh, what I'm hearing from you is you, yeah, yes, we are engaging in practical application, but then we're asking, is this working? If not, why not? And if it is working, what are we learning from it so that we can actually build upon? So you start with a theory, you put things into practice, but then you re-examine both the theory and practice. That's what praxis is, where you're constantly, uh, you know, experimenting with both theory and practice, and not just dogmatically following what you think you should do. Agree. So, looky here, you know, we're 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 coming up on the end of the program, Zach, and I do want to make sure uh, to give you a chance if you're interested in uh, talking a little bit more about or just saying a word or two about the cooperative new school, uh, if if that's something uh, worth talking about, because that's how I first got to know you. Yeah, I don't think we're doing that anymore. <laughs> um, it was a cooperative college. We did okay for a little while, um, but everybody just kind of got jobs, got good jobs, and kind of went off in different directions, and it sort of did, it sort of petered out a, a, a bit. Um, we had a good run there for about four or five years. Um, we taught a bunch of classes. We did a bunch of research articles and, you know, we made a little bit of money. Um, but it was a cooperative. It was a official cooperative and it was supposed to be a higher ed, a cooperative higher, higher ed school where students could be members and that sort of stuff. We never really had any student members. And um, I think it might've been a bit ahead of, the, of its time, but Every, like I said, everybody just kind of went in a different direction as far as uh, people got tenure track jobs, people got jobs at foundations, and 
you know, Mel was sort of is sort of working with the tribes, and I think it just people just didn't have time for it. Well, I, I'm not surprised. I, I am uh, I am sad because uh, I actually looked at the curriculum and some of the things that y'all were offering, and it was uh, it was let me say of high intellectual rigor. Uh, it, it was uh, <laughs> academics done well uh, without the bullshit, as far as I could tell. But I totally understand. I also want to take an opportunity, uh, Zach, to to let you know in the in the comments. Uh, Susan Emery writes in that Ben Emery and myself are listening from the Hamakawa. Uh, and apologies for the uh, mispronunciation, I'm sure, but off the coast of Hawaii. Uh, ben considers himself a redneck hippie and says that's someone who can roll up their sleeves, getting things done with whatever is available. That sounds yeah. like just like a redneck to me, but if we need to put redneck hippie on it, I'll I'll take it. But that definition that Ben gave us, that just sounds like redneck to me. That's a that's a redneck that smokes some of that wacky tobacco. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. You know, uh, uh, you know, I, I uh, you know, they they used to call us, and you can tell I'm bald now, right, Zach? But they used to call us, uh, you know, uh, uh, long-haired country boys, right? Yeah. Uh, but but you know, I guess redneck hippie covers that just as well. Yeah. Doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, looky here uh, again, Zach. I'm I, I am sorry to hear that the cooperative new school is. Uh, let's just say it's on hiatus. Uh, but I do want to give you an opportunity to to share anything else uh, about what you're up to and what you're learning. Uh, we're having a uh, meeting this Saturday called Trends in the Automotive Industry. We got two master techs, a service writer, and a part specialist. There will be uh, a virtual option, and uh, you can register on my uh, my uh, my uh, Twitter page at Redneck Activist. It's pinned on my Twitter page. So, uh, and if you want to make a donation, please go to automotivefreeclinic.org and make a donation. And what am I learning? I'm learning to uh, run an organization with virtually no budget. Well, that's a that's a valuable thing to learn. But I'm gonna fuss at you a little bit and say, how come you didn't tell me uh, and give me the registration page so I could put it out to my audience? So, if you have the capacity. Drop it in the chat, and yeah, I will I'll share it on my Substack page. I will drop the chat. And folks, if any of y'all listening to Redneck Gone Green uh, gets a chance to to go to this trends in the automotive industry uh, 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 virtually, uh, let Zach know that you that you came uh, to his program and their program through the Redneck Gone Green, so we can begin uh, to to build and cross pollinate together. So I want to take this opportunity to thank uh, Zach Henson. He is the mad redneck. Uh, he is the founder and chief uh, certified technician of the Automotive Free Clinic in Montgomery, Alabama. Uh, I want to uh, uh, welcome Zach back, who uh, in, the, in, the, in the technology associated with, uh, 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 I want to say thank you, Zach, for, uh, for joining us. Uh, Zach, of course, is the founder uh, and chief technician, a certified technician, uh, automotive technician with the Automotive Free Clinic in Montgomery, Alabama. He's also got uh, other folks that he works with. Uh, and Zach, I want to give you uh, an opportunity for any final and closing thoughts. And Zach has shared with me the 
the registration link and I'm going to share it uh, on my various uh, pages and encourage folks uh, to join us. So, Zach, I'm going to give you the final word. Yeah, I guess my final word would be fight like hell. Um, you know, I sort of had this perspective that I don't think that the human species is going to be here in 250 years, no matter what we do. And uh, there's going to be no legacies. There's going to be no heroes to be remembered. And the only reason to do the right thing is to do the right thing. And fight like fucking hell to do the right thing because that's the only thing left is to do the right thing. Ain't nobody coming to save us but ourselves. Zach Henson, thank you so much for what you do. Zach is the mad redneck. He's the founder of the Automotive Free Clinic in Montgomery, Alabama. I want to encourage y'all to go to the free clinic uh, network that uh, uh, trends in the automotive industry. I'll I'll be sending that out. I also want to share with folks that this audience is getting larger, stronger, and better organized. So remind you, please like, comment, and subscribe. I know everybody says that. And you know why? Because it works. Because the reality is that the way the social media algorithms work, see, they don't want to have an audience for people like Zach Henson or David Cobb. Uh, they scared shitless uh, of the fact that we talk uh, plain talk that ordinary people can understand. And so I'm asking you to help us grow this network, grow this audience. And Zach, thank you so much. Keep on keeping on, brother. Peace. All right. Take care. Thank you for having me on.